chapter one, book of Acts, and some of this stuff will keep. What are we? Some of this stuff um, regarding the introduction to the book of Acts will just keep popping up as we go through the text, and um, uh, basically we'll just go through the text as we usually do, verse by verse. I'm in no hurry. Um, I'll give you a schedule at some point. Uh, there's no break in the fall until uh, we get to our Christmas break. So, um, you know, there's no days coming up in the near future where we won't be here. So I'll give you a calendar or schedule at some point because there may be some days, well, there will be some days uh, in the spring post-January when we may not be meeting. But uh, for the fall, it's pretty, pretty set and stable. We're here until uh, we take a break for Christmas. So look at verse 1. Uh, in the first book, well, again, you know what the first book is. It was Luke, the Gospel of Luke. In the first book, O Theophilus, there's a name, Theophilus. Uh, again, you go to Gospel of Luke, it begins the same way. Luke is writing these two books, and he's, he's sort of addressing them to Theophilus, now, you know, the inquiring mind should say, who is Theophilus? Um, well, we know what the word means. The word means, it's is, is a, is a Roman name, Latin name. The word means lover of God. Theophilus, philos, lover of God. So some people think maybe it's just being addressed to everyone that loves God. Um, the problem with that is in Luke's gospel, when Theophilus is mentioned in the very opening verses, he's referred to uh, with something like most honorable Theophilus, which makes it sound, makes it sound like he's a Roman, Roman um, officer of some kind. So Theophilus is probably a Roman officer of some, time, some kind. He's connected to Luke, um, probably close acquaintance of Luke, maybe Luke's patron, maybe the one who's providing some income to Luke so he can take time to do this research, particularly in Luke's gospel. If you, This could be some of your homework. Look at the first few verses of Luke's gospel. There Luke makes it very clear he did serious investigation before he created that orderly account that became the gospel of Luke. Um, we, we know that. We know that from the text. Luke is a serious historian. Uh, there's been a lot of work done over the centuries about the book of Acts, and there's lots of historical tidbits in the book of Acts. There's the mention of some Roman leaders like Gallio and people like that. What, what we've been fascinated by for centuries is where we see historical information given to us in the book of Acts Highly reliable, highly reliable, um, probably more so than any other ancient document that comes out of the first century. Uh, it makes sense that Luke was a good historian. He tells you that in the Gospel of Luke. He shows you that in Luke. He shows you that here. Now, what was there's all, Luke? Luke, and by the way, Luke is not a major character in the New Testament. He is a sometime traveling companion of Paul. I want to encourage you to always encourage people to read, read closely. You will notice in the book of Acts, uh, there are a few places where all of a sudden the pronoun goes from they to us. 
to we. Uh, chapter 16, you'll see that starting. Uh, it's obvious in the book when Luke has joined Paul on his journey. All of a sudden, instead of talking about people in the third person, he's talking about people in the first person, we. He was a traveling companion sometimes of Paul. Uh, there are like three references to Luke in the New Testament. Um, in Colossians, we learn what Luke's profession was. What was it? He is a medical doctor. He's referred to as the beloved physician in the book of Colossians. So um, being a doctor, you know, probably means he pays attention to some details. Probably means he uh, is pretty good with facts. Uh, he, he shows himself to be a historian that is very, very, um, very, very sensitive to, to facts. Um, some of you are traveling to Greece with me next year. Uh, you'll following footsteps of Paul, you'll see that the book of Acts is almost a, a, a travel travel guide uh, for for Greece. You learn an, you learn a lot about Greece um, and all the places that Paul traveled. So uh, Luke is writing to Theophilus. Is his second volume. You learn that in the first verse. But notice how he describes it in the first verse, in the first book of Theophilus, I have dealt with all that Jesus, and I hope you know the word began. You notice the word began there. I have dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach. He didn't stop it at his ascension. Uh, the author is adamant that the reason you need to read the book of Acts is the book of Acts shows how Jesus is doing his work after his ascension. And he's doing his work through us. Uh, by the way, that's why the Apostle Paul loves to call us the body of Christ. We are the only physical presence that Jesus has in the world now. But there still is a physical presence of Jesus in the world now. It's the people of Jesus animated, energized by the Spirit of Jesus. So uh, the author Luke is saying to Theophilus, um, you know, remember my first volume. This is the second volume. In my first volume, I, I painted a picture of what Jesus began doing in the gospel. And this book is going to show what he's continuing to do. I began to do and teach, verse 2, until the day when he was taken up. That's his ascension. It's only Luke Acts, Luke's writing, uh, that, that presents the ascension to us. So you'll see the ascension. After resurrection on a Sunday, well, you're going to see his ascension takes place 40 days after the resurrection. It's Luke, here in Acts, it tells you that. So if you do the math, 40 days after the resurrection means we celebrate, we remember the ascension on Thursday of that week. Uh, we can't get people back to church on Thursday, so you can't really do much with ascension. I've been to one Ascension worship service in the last 38 years uh, that occurred on a, on a Thursday. Uh, but it's, Luke, it's Luke's writing in Luke and Acts that shows us uh, the Ascension. It's an important part of the package. Death, burial, resurrection, and Ascension. So here in verse 2, he's talking about Jesus when he was taken up. That's, that's the Ascension, which he's going to describe to you later. After he had given commands through the Holy Spirit... So here, very quickly, you're introduced to the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is referenced around 50 times in the book of Acts. Uh, I hope you have a vibrant, vital, living, 
growing relationship with the Holy Spirit. Uh, if not, the book of Acts will help you with that. So um, you hear, here you see the Holy Spirit uh, brought into the text in verse 2, giving commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles. Uh, the, the word apostles there is probably broader than just the 11 that you may be thinking of. Uh, the, the word apostle, which differs from the word disciple, uh, the word apostle means sent ones. To be an apostle means Jesus has sent you somewhere. Uh, that's, that's what the word apostle means. And, of course, you're going to see in the book of Acts, these people are sent. Um, none, none of the apostles, none of the original apostles, as far as we know, uh, died in Jerusalem. They all died a long way from home because they had, they had gone into the world to take the gospel to the world. That's what the word apostles means. Uh, so you tend to think about the, the 11, take Judas out of that one. You tend to think about the 11, um, you'll see in the book of Acts, Matthias is who replaces Judas to bring it back to 12, because you have to have 12. I'm sure we'll talk about why. Um, but you also notice in, in the gospel, and, and Luke particularly points this out in his, in his gospel, that um, uh, in, in, in the Gospel of Luke, or around chapter 10, you see Jesus sending out a group of 72. Uh, so there's 72 sent ones beyond just the original apostles. So uh, um, he's talking here about the commands given through the Holy Spirit to these who are being sent, sent to the world with the gospel whom he had chosen. Of course, Jesus chose them. Verse 3, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many, by many proofs. You can, actually, you can actually translate that word proof there with two English words, infallible proofs. The word proof there is very, very strong. And again, this is a medical doctor talking to you about proofs here, evidence here. Um, he presented himself alive, Jesus presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, infallible proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Um, yeah, it's Luke that tells us there's resurrection, and then he spent 40 days. Jesus spent 40 days with his followers in his post-resurrection reality. Um, there are at least, depending on how you count them, in the New Testament, there are at least 10 references, 10 examples, 10 episodes of post-resurrection Jesus meeting with his followers. So um, after his resurrection, he spent 40 days with his followers, teaching them about the kingdom of God. And we'll talk a lot about what it mean, what the kingdom of God means, and we'll start with it here in this text. Notice it doesn't say he spent 40 days with them telling them how they can go to heaven. Now, going to heaven is a wonderful thing, and I hope you know how to do that. Um, but he, he, in the New Testament, it's clear, and clear on this consensus. He spent those days teaching about the kingdom of God. Now, part of the kingdom of God is you get to go to heaven. Uh, the kingdom of God is the rule, the reign, the influence of God. In this world, in your life, in your heart, it's a rule, a reign, an influence of God, the spread of God's influence here in this world that obviously will be consummated one day. 
You know, hopefully all of our lives are examples of lives where the influence of God is spreading daily in our lives. So when Jesus taught, he taught about the kingdom of God. Remember the Gospels, the very first thing Jesus says when he preaches, repent and believe the kingdom of God is at hand. A new way of experiencing God, a new reign, rule, influence, realm of God is at hand through the work of Jesus Christ. So we are the people who are living in the kingdom now. We are growing in our kingdom reality, the influence of God, the reign of God. Our life is being controlled more and more by the king of the kingdom. Uh, One of these days we'll be in a world where there is nothing present except the kingdom. Uh, In this world, it's a mix. You see the kingdom of God advancing in this world, but you see the kingdom of the enemy advancing also. Uh, That's why Jesus taught that parable about the wheat and the tares grow together. And they do. Um, You know, I think in some ways we're in the midst of, of a great revival of the Christian faith in the world today. Not so much here in the United States, but around the world, we're in the midst of a great revival of the Christian faith, uh, which makes perfect sense because we've read Jesus, we've listened to him, makes perfect sense that as there, as the wheat is growing, great revival of the Christian faith, tares are growing too. The work of the enemy is growing. I, I mean, if you don't think the enemy is um, kicking it into overdrive, you're not paying attention to the news. The enemy kicks it into overdrive as the kingdom advances. And the kingdom will advance. The kingdom will come. We know that. Um, but as, as, as the kingdom spreads, as the influence, reign, rule of Jesus Christ spreads, yeah, the work of the enemy knows that um, his time is short. His time is short. Um, some of you are sharing with me some news coming out of Vladimir Putin this morning. Y'all can go watch the news. Um, But you need to understand what the kingdom of God is. Jesus spent those 40 days after his resurrection teaching them about the kingdom of God, what that means. hope you're growing in your relationship um, to the kingship of Jesus. So he presents himself alive to them after after his suffering by many infallible proofs appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. You know, there's a lot of proof for the resurrection. You know, don't just say, well, I accept it by faith. Well, I do hope you accept it by faith and you're growing into the realization of the resurrection. I hope you're experiencing the resurrection life, resurrection power, the the spirit of the resurrection. I hope you're experiencing all of that. But um, it's not just something that you have to accept by faith. Uh, There are a lot of proofs of the resurrection. The fact that you're sitting here in High Point doing this this morning is a pretty good proof of the resurrection. Uh, You know, they killed Jesus. He should have ended... If you're just looking at the natural world, he that he should have just ended as a fail as another one of the failed messiahs. Uh, I bet none of you probably even know the name Bar Kokhba. Bar Kokhba was one of the one of the many failed messiahs that the Jewish people experienced. There's nobody running around the world today trying to worship Bar Kokhba. But here you are on the other side of the planet, two thousand years later with this relationship with Jesus Christ. 
So, yeah, there are infallible proofs for the resurrection. It's not just something we accept by faith. Faith is important, um, but the resurrection is not against rational thought. The resurrection is beyond rational thought. You do, all, do, your, do your best rational thought and then go to faith, but the resurrection does not contradict reason. The resurrection does not contradict rational thought. And again, you being here at 9.30 on a Wednesday morning talking about this stuff, it's just fascinating that, that this is happening. There has to be some good reasons why this happened. And if you look at, and you're going to see it in the book of Acts, just take Peter, for example. Peter was a wreck and a mess before the resurrection. You're going to see a different Peter in the book of Acts. And you're going to see all these apostles give their lives to something that they know to be true. You know, it's really rare for somebody to die for something they know to be a lie. It's just hard to get the motivation to give your life and die for something that you know to be a lie. Well, notice the reality of these apostles, these followers, post, post-resurrection. So uh, keep going. Verse 4. And while staying with them, your translation may say staying, or your translation may say eating with them. Either one's appropriate for the Greek. Um, eating and staying with each other is pretty much the same thing. We Southerners know that one. Uh, eating and staying are pretty much the same thing. Uh, and while eating or staying with them, he ordered them, Jesus ordered them in these 40 days, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father. Uh, this is spoken of at the, end of, chapter, of the at the end of the last chapter of the Gospel of Luke and is picked up here. At the end of the Gospel of Luke, you saw Jesus tell the apostles at the end of the 40 days, when he got to the ascension, he tells the apostles, stay in Jerusalem and wait. Wait for, and here it's referred to as the promise of the Father. Uh, that's the Holy Spirit. That's the gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, Jesus in the Gospels promised the Holy Spirit uh, throughout the Gospels. Um, the promise of the Father is the gift of the Holy Spirit, which is Jesus returned to his people in the power of the Spirit. So um, you, you see here, they do exactly what they're told. They all stay, the 120 that you'll see referenced a little bit later, the 120 stay there in Jerusalem, because that's what Jesus told them to. He told them, you know, in the Gospel of Matthew, go into all the world. But here he says, before you go, wait. Wait for the promise of the Father. Don't leave Jerusalem yet. So they're being obedient. I'm sure they were anxious to get to work. Um, because they'd done all this Jesus stuff. Uh, they'd experienced all this Jesus stuff. I'm sure they're anxious to get to work. But you notice that Jesus says, you've got a huge task ahead of you, but the first thing you need to do is wait. Stay in Jerusalem and wait for the promise of the Father. Well, again, keep your chronology straight. Uh, he ascends after 40 days. Ten days later is when the promise of the Father comes. The Holy Spirit comes. Pentecost means the 50th day. Uh, it's on the 50th day. He ascends on the 40th. The Holy Spirit comes on the 50th day. So they have a 10-day long, pretty much a 10-day long prayer meeting there in Jerusalem. 
They're obedient. They're waiting for the gift that the Holy Spirit will be to them that, the, that has been promised by the Father. Let me show you something else here. See the word Father? That word Father rarely occurs in the Old Testament. Um, it occurs like three times in the Old Testament. Um, there are a lot of titles for God in the Old Testament. A lot of titles for God in the Old Testament. Um, but the only time you see Father used, and it's rarely used, it's usually in reference to God being the Father of the nation of Israel. There's something very different in the New Testament. You know, when Jesus looked at his followers, looked at you folks, and said, pray then like this, our Father who art in heaven. You can even call him Abba. The Holy Spirit in you will allow you to call him Abba, Papa, Daddy. Um, you see the word Father all of a sudden all over the place in the New Testament. Uh, so there's something distinctively Christian about calling God Father. Um, you can talk about that for a long time, which I point that out simply to say for, there are people out there who don't like to use the word Father for God, and they prefer to use the word Creator. Creator does not equal Father. I mean, just think about that one a while. A father does help create, but hopefully a father does a whole lot more than create. That's why creator, redeemer, sustainer is not an equivalent to Father, Son, Holy Spirit. Um, because the Son is more than redeemer. The Holy Spirit is more than sustainer. So, um, you know, I know some people in the Christian community today, they almost choke on some of the language of the Trinity because it's so male-oriented. But that language is important in the New Testament. And um, I just would submit to you that creator, redeemer, sustainer is not an equivalent. Is uh, th Those are true terms. God is creator. Jesus is redeemer. The spirit is sustainer. But Father, Son, Spirit is a whole lot more than that. But the word Father is an important word for the New Testament. Um, that's why I refuse to let go of it. The New Testament refuses to let go of it. Uh, I know some people have bad experiences with earthly fathers, but that shouldn't make you reject the use of the title Father for God. It might lead you to look at God as the perfect father who does the job much better than your earthly father did. Anyway, the promise of the father. That's, that's, a, that's a phrase unique to to Luke's writings, uh, the promise of the Father, which is the gift of the Holy Spirit. And we're going to get to talk a lot about the gift of the Holy Spirit. Um, and you're going to get to hear something about the Holy Spirit here. And while staying, verse 4, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, and they stayed in obedience, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. Uh, ten days later, they're baptized with the Holy Spirit. Um, in the book of Acts, and we're going to have a lot of time to talk about this, there's a lot of phrases, baptized with the Spirit, filled with the Spirit. Um, there's a lot of phrases being used. I think most of them are synonymous. I don't know that they're all speaking of a different work of the Holy Spirit. We'll talk about what it means to be baptized in the Spirit. Um, but you notice here as they quote Jesus, um, 
Jesus is quoting two baptisms that are important, being baptized with water and being baptized with spirit. Uh, if you don't know what it means to be baptized with the spirit, uh, you're in the right place. We're going to stay the book of Acts. Uh, by the time you finish, you'll have a lot of evidence from the book of Acts about what it means to be baptized in the spirit. Uh, obviously, the early Christian community wanted you to be baptized in water and baptized in the spirit. So uh, that just kind of whets your appetite for what we'll be talking about. Again, I do think this book is the acts of the Holy Spirit through some of the apostles. Um, in this book, you'll see how the Holy Spirit operates. You'll see how the Holy Spirit grants boldness to the early Christian community. These are just, many of them were just simple fishermen from around the Sea of Galilee. And you, you're going you to see a holy boldness in them that doesn't come from them. When they're preaching in Thessalonica, they're accused of something. And it's a great accusation. Uh, it wasn't meant to be a compliment. But when, they, when you see them in Acts 17, when they, you see Paul make it to Thessalonica, uh, they, they, when, when a riot occurs because of what they're doing, uh, the reason the riot occurs is the people go to the Roman magistrates and say, these people are turning the world upside down. Well, yeah, they were. That's still what we're supposed to be doing, turning the world upside down. Um, now, actually, what we're doing is we're putting the world right side up. But to the world out there, it feels like we're turning them upside down. Because we're, we're going to the world with some audacity and hopefully some boldness to say you've got to live a certain way. You've got to do it a certain way. Being a Christ follower means something different from whatever the culture wants you to be. So, yeah, the, these simple people, and, and you'll see in the book of Acts, they're actually one, at one point they're, they're referred to as not very educated people. They were not formally trained. Again, Peter was a fisherman. Uh, Paul was formally trained. But Peter and the earliest apostles were not formally trained. Uh, they were, as the book will say, they were unlearned men. But they turned the world upside down. So we need to pay attention to our picture, our photograph, and, and, and see how, how close we come to looking like our photograph. So that's a good place to stop. You notice at verse 6, you're going to start getting into an account of the ascension. Again, make sure you keep the package together, death, burial, resurrection, and ascension. Um, he was resurrected 40 days later. He ascended 50th days. 50th day after that, he returned in the power of his Holy Spirit to his people. And we'll have a lot of opportunities to talk about that. So, um, yeah, good place to stop here. Let's pray together. God, we're so grateful for this time that we can share. We're so grateful for the fellowship that we can share. We're, we're grateful for Glenn, who fixed us some breakfast or brunch this morning. We're grateful for your word, and we, we pray that we may learn what it means to be people of your word, to live in submission to your word, to let our lives come under judgment of your word rather than us judging your word. May your word convict us and challenge us. May your word lead us to be the people you're calling us to be. Help us to be those people who 
the world thinks is busy turning the world upside down with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Help us to live as kingdom people, kingdom people who know your rule, know your reign, and are growing daily with your influence in our life. And God, through us, may we be your influence in the world, because we do pray your kingdom come on earth as is presently being realized in heaven. God, we offer you thanks for this day. Send us forth in the power of your spirit to live as fully devoted, distinctive followers of Jesus Christ. Amen.